How do you guys like McDonald's on a scale of 1 to 10? I wish their frosty machines weren't always fucking broken. True. It's cheap and got me through college. Also true. I, uh... I, I, I'm a sucker for the dollar menu. There is no dollar menu anymore. Right, seriously? No. There... Well, I swear there was. No, I mean, if you can find them one that has a dollar menu, then fully go for it, because <laughs> all I've seen is like a two for three dollars or something. Uh, there yeah. is no dollar menu anymore. The recessions hit McDonald's. <laughs> I mean, the drinks are still a dollar. Uh, oh, yeah, like great. You know, I can get my dollar McDonald's Coke. Technically, the drinks are free if you just bring your own Coke. <laughs> just go in there, act like you ordered something, and then just walk out. I did that in high school for like several months of just Tell constantly me. recycling the same cup over and over again, and they never said anything in the morning. I, 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 I bet they had one of those months where like we're not paid enough for this shit. I mean, <laughs> fair. Technically, everything's free if you got a Glock. <laughs> just technically, anything's free if you just fast enough. <laughs> so uh, we, we got someone for speed and someone for power. All right. His is well. Mine is more the five finger discount scenario. So. <laughs> All right. So we are here um, for our podcast, Crankshaft. I am Broderick, and I am joined by uh, both Caveman. Hello. And Fengar Sensei. Hello. So we are uh, reviewing Onibaba. Um, we decided on this one instead of Trolls 2. Um, just to, because it's one of my more favorite um, movies that introduced me to like Asian horror and uh, like J-horror or K-horror, uh, which would be Japanese horror or Korean horror. Self-explanatory. Um, but it is one of those simpler movies where they're not running at you with jump scares left and right. It's it's the build up throughout the entire movie, the scenes, the, the characters, their thoughts, and how they act throughout the movie that builds up to the to the very end. Um, so one of the first big things that they throw at you is this. Um, they just call it the hole, and it's it looks like a pit that runs straight down um, for quite a while. And uh, if I remember right, it was the hole darker and darker, and um, or deep, deeper and darker, or something like that. And it basically it's giving a background to the hole itself, as this as its own entity, as it's going to be a major part of the movie or the film. And they uh, they want you to remember it, so that's why they introduce it as the first thing, because it is used. Uh, repetitively throughout the throughout the film um so it's definitely something that um i i thought was really good uh a good choice to uh sit that in the watcher's mind uh, from the very beginning well at least if anything that's for me what gave me that first impression because for Whenever any type of movie would initially start off of giving a description on someone, that is intense going to be 
some either a major character or something in the background that's going to be affecting a whole lot of things. And the first thing that it shows is this giant hole, gave a description, here's the name of it. And, you know, this is a darkness that has been in this hole since ancient times. Yeah. And then is the title splash card of Onibaba, which I will come back to later. Yeah, and they even, like, very early and showed, like, what the hole was being used for. Um, because it had the, um, like, within the first few minutes, had the first, um, two main characters, um, like, show that them killing some random soldiers and dumping them in the hole. Yeah, so, yeah, let's talk about that. So, at the very beginning of the film, um, you see two people who have fled the battleground, and with armor, swords... And everything and they they're sort of dragging each other along and when they finally sort of kneel down to take a breath um at that swift moment they're stabbed um by two i, I want to call them pole arms i i know they have an actual name um but they're effectively pole arms mm-hmm. and uh both of them die and a young woman and a older woman come out of the reeds and these reads, I feel like, are like an environmental storytelling uh, through the movie as well, because you see the reeds themselves as they move through the wind or they don't move at all are a very good storyteller to the to the film. And so they crawl out of these reeds, undress um, them, basically to like their underwear, and drag these two individuals and dump them into the hole and it's it, it as soon as the first one's dumped in they they have a very um active scene using the drums and uh <laughs> sort of a funny voice that they use but um i i definitely did find that the uh audio work um and and this is something that we were talking about was made so all the audio work including talking was done in the post uh, of the film so after like all the scenes had been filmed they recorded it in a like separate area at least for a lot of the initial sounds like and this is going more for as it presents the movie, because, you know, you have two injured samurais going through these tall grasses. Your first thought is, all right, here is our main characters. These are the first people that we see. This might be a story because the whole setting for this movie is, I believe the 14th century. Like 14th century, you know, Edo period, something along those lines. Yeah. So there is essentially just like a war going on in between two emperors fighting so you have all the men majority of the victims that happen in this are going to be men and mostly samurai but we're just watching two of them go through the reeds it's like okay this they just got done with the battle they either lost or they're the only survivors or anything just trying to get back is this how we're going to start and then just a moment of reprise and catching their breath and everything then you just like those pole arms just come out of the grass and just kill them so it's like oh they're dead and in come our 
basically our main characters, which is a mother and her daughter-in-law. And all they do whenever they kill these warriors and troops that come through the gra- this grassy area is just strip them of their armor and weapons, drag them to this pit, dump them into the pit so you don't really see a sign of, oh, pile of dead bodies here. We're just literally just throwing them underground. Mm-hmm. And then we take all these armor and weapons and everything that we gathered, go down to this other person because everyone's basically a peasant at this point because all a lot of it gets explained later on in the movie. But because this war is going on, you have a lot of the farmers that can't go out and farm anymore because you have battlings. Fields are just running wild, not with workers, but just straight up bloodshed and violence and all that stuff. So you have a lot of people just having to pedal, get by, and just being beggars. There's Everything is just grim in the setting for it. So what's the best thing to do? Kill these injured soldiers, take their gear, and let's trade it to the guy who... It wasn't rice that he was trading for everything. What was it called again? Oh, gosh. <laughs> You're putting me on the spot now. Um, well, I, I can't remember either. That's why. Yeah. It, it was... Uh... Oh, God. For, for the sake of the conversation right now, it is we're just going to call it rice until we remember what it was called. Yeah, I, I, I'd probably agree with that. <laughs> it, it's, essentially, it's essentially rice... We might just put it in description somewhere what it was actually called because they don't really say the name of it that much. It was just because even right off that bat was just not even saying, hey, I want a few more bags of rice. It was just handing it and handing them a few bags. And it's like, we want one more bag just so they can go back and have food for either like the week or ration out for a month or whatnot because it doesn't seem like. They've been doing that for a long time, but long enough to where they have a routine. Millet. Millet, okay. Yeah, and millet is a grain, I believe. I'm just going to Google that real fast. Yes, it is a grain. Small seeded grasses. Okay, so so cereal crop. Yep. Okay, so it's essentially like any type of grain. All right, yeah. That perfectly makes sense. It's something small that you can get a lot of that you can eat and get your nutrients out of as well. So again, trying to do anything to just survive while this war has been raging for, we have to assume, probably a few years at this point. Yeah. um, Though I don't know too much about that war. I don't think it's really relevant to the story um, too much. Yeah, it's something that's going on in the background. You have characters that are affected by it, but it's not the main focus. It's yeah, You yeah. have certain splinters that happen that sort of come in to affect the story, but it's not the main focus. Yeah, I, I definitely believe that like it, that being part of the backstory is, is, is very important and shows that... Uh, um, I, I kind of find that the war is, is actually important in the sense that it's showing how these people are being affected in their day-to-day lives and yeah. how much of an impact it has made on them, including that old man that's in the cave that will trade 
which is one of the next scenes that comes up is is the old man will trade these these uh, fleeing people's gear like their swords their armor and the padding and all that he'll trade it for for the millet and so it shows, you know, how everyone in this small community, because there aren't that many, at least that we know, we, we assume that it's almost decimated out. Um, and, you know, the crops wouldn't grow because of uh, terrible rains and a terrible winter. And um, all the men have been taken away, so they can't, like, regrow the crops yet. Um, yeah, so at least it could show that the entire town was basically wiped out between people starving in the winter and being taken off to war. Yeah, I don't, actually, I think it wasn't that it was a terrible winter. I think they were saying something about, like, there was hail and, like, cold in summer or something like that, like, a terrible, like, harvest season. Uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of stuff they were talking about. Of either yeah. way, like uh, the coincidences led to a lot of death mm-hmm. in any sense of the form of, of of events that had happened. But um, w- what's important to take out of this is that these two were, you know, still trying to survive in any means possible and have survived. Um, due to that fact and one of the things that we were sort of talking about was after they had killed these um, two individuals was um, we had concluded that either they had no remorse for the situation or they were so desensitized after doing it so many times that they no longer cared which I'm not really sure which answer would make it any better yeah but it just <laughs> well, like, it definitely of, shows oh. that they uh that they, they they've been that affected by this yeah like yeah the, the, the due to the war they were pushed to such extremes that they had to basically turn to you know crime thievery murder yeah and uh so after that, um, we're introduced to the first character with a name, uh, Hachi. The only character. Uh, there's two characters with names. Oh, yeah, okay, yes. He, the guy one, of them who... does, one of them isn't actually there. Yeah, one's not even <laughs> in the movie. He's just referenced. <laughs> so, well, no, that technically three then, oh, but yeah, you the, still the, have the, the person that is trading for the millet and everything, Ushi. Ushi, yeah. So three characters with a name because even the person that he has with him is just credited as Ushi's follower yeah so (laughs) so we have um we have Haji who shows up and he's he's uh he escaped through the mountains uh with the son slash uh, I guess husband of the two women and they escaped into the mountains, snuck past, tried to get into a village to get some food, and were basically ambushed, and, and uh, the, the son was killed. 
and Hachi escaped and finally made it back and so he was eating their food because he hadn't eaten for who knows how, how long it's not like even that's not given a proper time frame too yeah. but he also makes a note that oh yeah these I had to hide the clothes that I was wearing before because if someone saw that they would just drag me back to the so oh yeah he kills a buddhist like a buddhist monk yeah or like he calls it a priest but it's more like a buddhist monk garb of the time coming with the necklace too because like hey no one messes with the priest they can just wander around wherever they want to which yeah for a lot of indications especially for movies it was probably not a trope at the time back then but especially nowadays Whenever you have a character that comes out and either kills a religious leader or a follower or a person of the cloth in any type of religion, that's always a bad thing. And sooner or later, they're going to get their comeuppance or revenge or something like But for Hachi, it's just something like, yeah, you know, I just did that. Able to walk around freely now because no one messes with a priest. So, hey. You got off scot-free. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he did eventually get his comeuppance, I suppose. But mm-hmm. well, um, yeah. But again, it was just it's it was setting that there to let the audience know of this guy is essentially just a straight up piece of shit. Yeah. He, oh, yeah. He, he does he, not care. Very. Yeah. Like even during the conversation about like telling them how the son died, um, like telling the mother how the son died, and like. Um, even then, like, he came across as kind of a piece of shit, because he kept just, like, you know, eating their food and just casually talking about it and, like, kind of avoiding it. Well, he was talking about himself the entire time, if you didn't notice that. It was like, me, 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 I had to deal with this, this was my woes, this is my troubles, and they kept asking him, what about my son, or what about my husband, and he kept going on about himself, so he's very self-centered, in in the movie, um, and that's a point I think they were trying to throw across is like he does not care about anyone but himself and his desires and his wants and needs. That's why he also killed the priest because he just doesn't care. Um, and I, I almost could say like he might have been void of empathy. Mm. Uh, and that was like a big characteristic that he had. He had no empathy towards others. It was about his own personal gain and benefits. Yeah, everybody is just a means to an end. And so, um, yeah, after he reveals that the son died and he's eaten like, what, two or three bowls at that point? <laughs> um, he... Uh, Ask them, you know, hey, is my is my shack, you know, still, you know, running good? And they're like, yeah, I think so. And he's just like, all right, well, I'm going to go there and see you later. And he just dips out. And, uh, well, I think at one point he does try to question them about um, how they had survived and how they got the millet. Yeah, because it was just simple questions of, yeah. You know, that's some nice clothes that you got here, and you actually have food around here. How are you guys doing this exactly? And, of course, the two women don't really answer in a roundabout way. The young, the younger one 
who is you know credited as Kichi's wife, the older one being Kichi's mother. Like the younger one doesn't really talk in many aspects like that, and the older one is just like, well, you know, being roundabout in the answers at first, and then just giving off that impression of, oh, he's prying too close into what's going on. Are they going to try to murder him? You know, all this type of red herring scenarios to what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I did want to point out like, uh, immediately sort of after that, um, and like, like I said, throughout the movie, they do focus on the reeds. Um, but I think after that scene was when the, once he leaves, the reeds started doing like crackling and they, they added that as part of the audio is like the, the reeds would start crackling every, like every time that like she would look at Hachi and that, that would be the younger, uh, woman would just almost like lust after Hachi. Um, the reeds would start to crackle and I, I thought that was a definite, um, in- interesting choice of sound design there. Which, now that I think about it, after watching the movie and everything that happened, we will get into it and everything. Is it a possibility that Hachi was the one that killed Kichi as a means of just getting to his wife? I mean, absolutely. The, like, we have no actual like proof that it wasn't him. And that's what the like mother-in-law tries to... like the older woman, whatever you want to call her, um, she tries to sort of insinuate that, like, hey, we have no proof that he didn't just kill him and just get back here for you. Yeah. Or if he even, like, if the son's even dead, or, like, if he didn't just abandon everyone by himself. Yeah, like, the son could still be out there alive. Well, because there's several pieces of dialogue that Again, a lot of the stuff becomes implied either in the background or just the way it's the dialogue is performed or certain motions the actors make whenever making these, like saying these lines and everything that can give you certain of, hey, maybe the motivation's here for this, something like that. Or That, that was just something I just thought of at the moment, yeah, considering they, they both his personality. Ambiguous. Yeah. Um, so I think the next thing that, that comes up is the, uh, the two swordsmen, um, one's chasing after the other on a horse and, oh yeah, as everyone's down by the river collecting water. Well, the two women are collecting water. Hachi's just there. Yeah. He just shows up with a fish. Mm -hmm. He's like, I got a fish. You want it? Nah, you take it. And he just, like, throws it in the water, like, near them. <laughs> Doesn't even hand it to her. And uh, he's like, come see me later. Over at my, over at my hut. And uh, he asked them, he asked the, the girl again, you know, how, how, you know, do they get it from, like, stealing? And then uh, immediately after, um, yeah, you see the two horsemen. One chasing after the other. The one in the front jumps into the water off the horse. It was actually kind of cool scene. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. 
but um, the other one immediately jumps in after, and they're trying to fight in the water. And they start getting towards the middle, and you start to see them struggle. And I thought that was pretty cool, because, yeah, they have heavy armor, and it really isn't meant for to be swam in. And um, as one's approaching, asking for help, Hachi takes his spear and, like, stabs him through the gut. Um, and tells the other two to, to get the other one that's partially drowning uh, downstream. And so they jump into the stream and they're like, oh, he's still alive. And they just dunk his head into the water to drown him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it just was so, it was so weird how, like, how fast on board he was for just murder them and get take their shit. Yeah. Even though they hadn't, like, how Wright came out and said... Oh yeah, this is what we do. I think at that point he sort of understood, like what they did, and so like he 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 wanted in on it at that point, mm-hmm. and so like by taking the initiative to kill that first guy, he was just like, I am capable of doing this as well. I I don't really want to say it was him saying I'm on board with what you guys are doing, and my because he was just nonchalant, okay with doing that. Yeah, I he mean, might as well have just been doing something like that the entire time until he got back. So he was just like, "All right, go on, get get the other guy." Yeah, I mean that that could always be true. Going, yeah, going with the assumption that they've been killing warriors and whatnot, getting them stuff and selling it. But he's just like, "Okay, so I can just you guys are doing this anyways. I'm just gonna do this out in public. That way, you guys just go do do what you're supposed to do." Because that's how he. Um, at this point, I'm just assuming that's how he's been surviving the entire time. Just straight up killing people and just selling their stuff. Yeah, I mean, that that might have been it, where he was just like, yeah, I'm going to teach you guys, like, this is how you how you make the big bucks. And they were like, we kind of already do that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, after, you know, stripping them down, they just send the bodies downstream, and then... Um, they take the loot over to, uh, Ushi and, uh, get some more millet and some sake this time. And then he, you know, sends a, sends a, you know, sort of those, uh, you know, fuck eyes over to, uh, the, the young daughter and this is like, Hey, I'm going to be at my shack again. She comes, come see me. And he leaves pretty much, and then the mother-in-law's like, "No, no, don't do that. You, you don't. You should stay with me." You know, your husband could still be alive. Scenario like that. Yeah. And uh, so the first night, she she goes off, and and you know goes to see Hachi, and then we have. Uh, almost a recreation of the se- of the first night, but it's the second night now, so it was almost like a deja vu moment. Because Caveman legitimately asked during the during this part of the film, like, "Hey, is is this like the the first scene again?" But like the mother's following this time, and then how she entered into the house it was like, "Okay, no, it it it's a it's a different day." <laughs> Well, it was because of the presentation for us. Like, you already had one scene. Same angles and everything, yeah. Well, close to the same angle, but 
not really because the first one had the camera focus on the daughter in their tent she just wakes up you know running through the reeds and everything yeah get into the guy's house and you know at least they close the door and all that stuff but they're just doing what they're supposed to do i believe ideally one concept that's used throughout this is just the what's it called Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid where the bottom pyramid is just full on physiological needs. Yeah. And that is essentially the main focus of this whole movie because it's just got to have food, water, breathing, homeostasis, just physical needs overall. That is the entire premise and nothing else in this pyramid of hierarchy ever closely gets touched on or dealt with because everything else is broken down and it's all just on this bottom rung of the bare necessities, but it goes through that whole thing. And then, you know, we have a day shot where the mother is just looking around, stares off into the reeds. As far as my assumption for it, was just having an imagining her daughter-in-law and this guy just in the reeds. I'm still not in the clear if it was an actual scene or quote unquote scene that happened or just her imagining delusional type thing thing and just getting more mad. I mean, it could have been that. Well, because then they cut. It's essentially the next night or however long it's been, but more than likely the next night. But now the camera just focuses on the mother-in-law. And it's set up in such a way that it's, feels just like the same the first night all over again but her perspective of what's happening but it's just the next night and you know she wakes up and just follows the daughter-in-law and just sees what happens and Mm -hmm. that sort of wells up that anger that later shows like it will get explained later on but it's an anger of everything's being taken away from me jealousy and the jealousy, interesting enough, isn't really pointed at the war anymore. She now has a physical person there that she can direct it all towards because not only has this person come back without her son, so you have that jealousy of he came back, but not my son, and now he's trying to steal my son's wife. Yeah. Trying to steal everything away from her. Instead of blaming all this misfortune on the war that has taken place, she now has someone to focus all that in at. Yeah. I will say, though, like, in, the, in that night and, like, the morning after, it maybe wasn't so much so, like, hatred or anything like that as she felt at first, but more, like, sexual jealousy. Um, it's possible. Yeah, there was, well, that, that... there was that one scene. That, yeah, you can say it, Fedgar. Yeah, like where it, it looked like she was, yeah, like, like it looked like where she was jealous, almost of like her, her daughter-in-law instead, her getting with uh, Haji. You know, yeah, the first you yeah, know, Haji. She, the first she, she ain't back. getting any. There is a reason this movie is not rated. Well, I mean, then, fortunately, but... fortunately, we didn't see anything, you know, waist down. It wasn't anything too explicit, but it had a lot of implications going on, which. Sure. For legitimately, in the movie's defense, a lot of all that really worked in their favor. Yeah, yeah. Because it was just so many conflicting emotions going on at the same time, and it was more or less just reaching a boiling point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, but like when she like in the next morning, um, right after the second night or something like that, where she like kind of threw herself at Hachi a little bit and he rejected her, then I could then you definitely kind of start towards more towards like anger and hatred, um, like trying to keep them separate, just because like you know, well, in she, a sense, she all, herself out of most likely didn't and and. It's sort of implied that like she does not want to be tossed to the side. Um, she wants to survive, like because she, she's survived this long. Um, you know, of course, with the with the daughter-in-law's help, but she has survived. And I think the entire reason why she's pursuing Hachi at that scene is, I need to survive with him, or I need to survive with her. And he's trying to take her away, and almost exclude um the the mother-in-law so at this point she's feeling cornered and scared um so she's she 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 turns that you know scared uh impulse into like an anger and fury as she's walking away she's like i will remember this yeah because even as she explained it is like please don't take her from me she is the last thing that i have left mm-hmm because as far as they are aware, her son is now dead or missing or anything else. All she has left as any form of connection to him is his wife. And even and even there has some implications of just she is being a controlling mother to her, which is yeah. why she's acting out like this. Because even having to talk to Hatchie about this, he just doesn't care. It's like, I'm not trying to take her. We'll just you know, essentially being friends with benefits. He's not looking at her. It's like, I want her as a wife. He's just like, no, she's legitimately in modern terms, just a side piece. She's right there, whatever. Yeah. It's just, just for those basic, you know, physiological needs and all that. She's just like, you can just have me instead. Just don't take her away because she's going to go with you. Then trying to have a conversation with her. In a bit, trying to say, oh, he he's an untrustworthy guy or anything. And she's just like, yeah, well, oh, okay. Well, what about your husband? Maybe he can actually come back. Well, he's dead anyway, so who cares? And it's like, oh, okay. You even have some tensions going back and forth there. It's like, what kind of a history has been going on that we, the viewer, aren't aware of? Yeah, you can definitely feel that like, every single character... Um in the film presented is almost has this sort of survival-esque mode where they're they only care about their own life and how they can survive um to the next day so it's really interesting uh, we're gonna skip over that one scene or do we agree Fair on enough. that I think if you want to if you the audience want to figure out what the scene is and you can watch the movie yeah, um, a scene happens. The end. Um, no, no, no. We can. I'll, I'll do the easiest brush over ever. They kill something and eat it. They. We're not going to talk about an it. Animal. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, yeah. We're not. We're not going to talk about it. Um, if you like animals. Maybe once you see an animal in the mo- in the film, skip that scene by like five minutes. Yeah. 
Um, but, um, besides that scene, um, the very next important scene, besides Hachi and the, and the young woman seeing each other at that point, is when um, the older woman meets the samurai. Mm-hmm. And you definitely can feel tension once he's shown up because he's very tall his his head almost touches the the top of the hut that they live in it was about the it was about the about the roof wasn't it i think he, it was, it was, i think he had to like lo, like hunch over a little uh, bit lean over yeah well even before the initial like introduction of him too it's you know the daughter-in-law runs away to go meet with hachi again the mother wakes up and is about to run out of the hut until she notices this blade that's just sticking through the wall of her hut from his pole arm or whatnot. Yeah. First thought is, oh, Hachi came to deal with her because, you know, he had a weapon as well. That's your first assumption. It's like, oh, he's just going to take care of this, as he called an old hag problem and all this stuff. It's like, oh, this is when the conflict's going to happen. Until it slowly gets pulled out, and then the samurai general just opens the door, walks in, and he's like, "That's a different character. Who is this? What's going on?" Yeah, so he um, had lost the battle, lost all his soldiers, and is trying to make his way back to Kyoto. And so he asks her where the nearest road that leads to Kyoto is, and she says, "Do north." And points in the direction. And he demands that she take him instead. And the samurai general it has the mask. And I am going to probably butcher it. The Hanya mask. Which is a like Oni face, face kind of mask. That's used in a lot of different plays or rituals uh, in Japan. And it is a Oni face. Um, that if you look at it from the front, it looks like angry or frustrated or maybe smiling, depending if you get the angle. Um, but it's like a dangerous smile. And then if you look from it where the head is downwards, it's almost sad and um, concerned is, is what the face looks like. Depending on the angle that you take a look at the actual mask... It gives different facial expressions because of the brows or the face uh, or the mouth. And the eyes have this like metallic hue to them, um, which sort of reflects really well in the lighting that they had uh, in the film. And uh, the, just sort of pausing there, the, the lighting in the film was actually fantastic in many scenes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just the subtle shading in like in the reeds um and like when they're in their huds and like talking just the way the shadow bounces off the top of their head like there were some really good scenes with the lighting yeah because this whole film is essentially just filmed in black and white so a lot of those shadows and lights pop out more you know characters are hiding either in the grass or in the shadows whites of their eyes will pop out in those scenes more yeah depending on the camera work whenever certain characters are talking either in the huts or certain things if they are wanting to 
present sort of a maliciousness behind what they're talking about. It's sort of lit underneath. So you have that sort of facial features from the shadows that point out to where it's saying, all right, this person either has like malicious intent or what he's saying is meant to be portrayed in a bad angle. Yeah. And I'll, I'll talk about shadows in a second. Uh, after we talk about a few scenes ahead, we'll t- we'll talk about that one scene where you had us pause it just to see the eyes, and we, oh, we can yeah. talk about that in a second. But um, and well, ahead. one one last thing I want to bring up, especially for the Hanya mask, a lot of people, the closest in pop culture terms that you probably will recognize this in, especially with a lot of either Asian or Japanese characters and whatnot, is more or less the half mask that they have, which is one that covers up the nose and the mouth has like the teeth and the fangs popping out of it. Yeah. Cause you don't really see a lot of the full mask in pop culture. It's just that half mask, which I'm not sure if that gives like a different interpretation for it, but that is the, at least pop culture wise, that is the closest resemblance that if people look at it, it's like, Oh yeah, that's where it's from. Yeah, well, it has, like, the two spikes that, that come out of the forehead and the, the teeth that bar over, just over the mouth, and still has, like, that sharp nose, and, yeah, it, it, but they, um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but they, they definitely did take out, like, obviously the mouth features, and when you look at the eyes, the eyes are more open on the, like, the modern day ones, you can actually see their eyes, but, like, the, uh, the actual masks, like, using this film or in, like, theaters and all that, they they cover everything except for, like, this small little hole in the center for their, so they can, like, see straight ahead with their pupils. Um, but it's very oh, yeah. small. Um, but, so, yeah, so she she's forced to lead him um, to that road, and so she starts to lead him around... And asks about, you know, him and everything. She's sort of talking bad about him, being like, you led many men to their deaths. You know, why do you hide your face like that? And he's like, well, this is the most beautiful face in all of Kyoto. You know, I wouldn't want you falling in love with me. uh, Yeah, if I took it off. And she eventually leads him to the hole and she jumps over it with a with a very like you know slow motion stride you don't really see slow motion back in the day like this was 1964 <laughs> like i don't know if like this was the first time it was used in in japanese film or not but uh it was probably relatively new for the time but um as she like jumps over the hole, he just casually walks and basically falls into it. All right, which I guess essentially shows the poor visibility the mask will give. Yeah, at least in the first place, because like like you said, even the eye holes are just just big enough to where you could see, but you can only really see straight ahead of you. you can't really look down unless you move your entire head. You can't really. You don't have your peripheral vision when wearing this mask anyway, so the only thing that you do notice is that which is right in front of you. So he, and, that's probably the reason why he was lost in that swamp anyways. 
Well, yeah, and also considering it was at night too. So yeah. with that and poor visibility, you're not getting yourself out unless you just either take your time or find someone that knows their way around there. Yeah. And so as as he falls in, she later comes back with a stake, a hammer, and some rope to go and, and collect. Oh yeah, in perfect form. The uh, yeah, the hammering hammering that pull in was, was was actually like I was actually impressed with how good of a form they had when hammering that in. Um, and Fanger here was so convinced that she had a beard, but it was the sight of her head because she has this gray streak that that goes through her hair on the side of her head, and because it was dark and it was at the angle, he was convinced it was a beard. <laughs> It, it really legitimately looked like one for us for just a moment. Um, but, you know, she hammered that stake in really well. But as um, she goes down, she, the first thing she, she does is try to remove the mask. Um, and as she, like, basically rips it off of him, it's like this hideous looking face. Almost looked like it was like the skin was peeled off. And she's like, prettiest man in all Kyoto. And she basically takes all the shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she was like mocking him, saying, oh wow, such a pretty face. You know, that's definitely the face of like a general... It just like mocking him for being ugly after she rips the mask off of him. Yeah. And and one thing I want to point out, especially for that scene too, not only just mocking him too, but when you look around, because this is the first time we probably and the only time we get a good look at what's inside this pit. And it is a lot of skull and bones. Like, the, granted, they were propped, you could tell, but it's still just... The amount of skeletons that are down there. Talk about shows skeletons in your closet, but I'm a deep ass closet. But <laughs> it also presents itself as it's either a moment of how long those two have been killing and throwing people down there, or it was because obviously it's not that far from where they live, where you have all these huts built up. So it's either like a village type thing that's going on of a quite possibly a ritual sacrifice going on too, but it's still just something of notice where it's not just a few bodies. It is a lot down there, Yeah, which will feed into a theory that I have later on. Oh, you think it's like the, uh, like how they get rid of their own bodies like a cemetery possibly but it also falls into the whole mythology of what the onibaba is the whole could possibly be an extension of that mythology considering a part of it is about feeding on the flesh of like people yeah which is a big part none of the Because we'd seen, like, actual, you know, bays being thrown in there. But, like, you know, like, assuming it's been just a few days after some of them have been thrown in, you would expect that some of these would still have, like, flesh on them, but they were all just skeletons. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, no, and, like, further on that theory, 
it kind of um i kind of see what you're going for though with that because they kind of made like subtle hints about it in the beginning about like saying maybe like the land feels cursed or something like that yeah Um, well because a lot of that takes like happens within asian and especially japanese mythology too of when you have a lot of malice being built up in one place, easiest place for like malice and anger and regret and all those negative emotions to be built up is people that get murdered. When you throw them all to just be collected in a certain spot, that usually has like a negative connotation to not only that area, but the surrounding area and it affects the people as well. Yeah. And that's essentially what is happening. Yeah, I mean, one of the descriptions that they gave at the beginning of the movie was, its darkness has lasted since ancient times. you think that would be, you know, (laughs) an an analogy for something. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. But that's, that's the initial thing, and that's why I also do believe in an aspect that this pit is a essentially is the character in the story. Yeah. Because it is the first thing introduced. It is the first thing given a description. In a sense, it could basically be what is named Onibaba. Because of all this negativity that is built up into it. Because that is a lot of dead bodies into it. And also, again, it ties into the fact of one aspect is it eats human flesh. What is the one thing that is always fed into the pit? Dead humans. And what do we see down at the bottom? It's just a whole bunch of skeletons. There's not decaying flesh. It's just skeletons. So, um, after she takes all that back, she, you can see her start to devise a plan. Um, so she tells her daughter that, you know, sinning is bad. And, you know, since she's not married to Hachi and they're just going at it that's a sin um by buddha and buddha will punish those who sin by sending demons but demons only exist in hell so she should be okay and this is like the start of like the gaslighting that we definitely see <laughs> mm-hmm. and um so that night um she she basically tells her uh, daughter-in-law, hey, you know, I'm going to be out. I'm going to go sell this stuff. I'll probably be back by early morning. Uh, make sure to get some eat. Go to sleep early. And the daughter taking that as a sign to, like, you know, go see Hachi again runs out. And in, as she's running... She, she has also mentioned earlier in the film the the daughter-in-law mentions multiple times that she's scared about running through the reeds at night. So she runs as fast as she can every time she runs through the reeds. And I almost think it's like the same thing as like when you turn off the 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 light at the bottom of the stairs and you have to run up real fast. Yeah, pretty yeah, it's like almost the same thing. I think it's that sort of same sort of feeling, I guess. Yeah, the ghost is going to nip at your ass. <laughs> and and even for a lot of those scenes that take place, later on it becomes a bit more, like, at least the soundtrack and the 
sound editing, what they do makes it feel a bit more surreal yeah, and a dreamlike sequence. But a lot of those initially, it's all silent. There's not really music playing. You hear a little bit of cricket going on and the wind going through the grass, but it's majority just silent as you just hear her running. Yeah. So and- it also still builds up that tension of, all right, everything's down here. Something has to happen. Something is going to happen for a lot of these occasions, and it never does. Yeah. And, and this time, though, when she's finally running through the field... The Onibaba shows up. You know, this Oni face and a very large um, uh, kimono. You know, no arms can be seen. Almost like T-posing on her. Asserting dominance. And she slides out from the shadows very slowly. I thought that was so cool for, for how they did it. Because it was like nothing and then... Just out of nowhere, she appears. And the girl screams out of terror. And as she does, the Onibaba fades back into the shadows. It's all very slowly to, uh, slowly done as well. So I thought that was incredibly clean. And the daughter immediately you know, runs home, screaming the entire time. And jumps into the corner and is crying there. And as the... Uh, Mother-in-law, you know, not too long after, shows up and's like, "Oh, what's wrong? Are you okay?" You know, trying to be there to comfort her and say, "You know, everything's okay. You're fine." You're just pushing it on just a little bit more, um, trying to be, you know, sweet and innocent when she's the one that had done, you know, ha- had caused that situation. Oh yeah, and this is where we get the double downing of the gaslighting going. Yeah, it continues. She doesn't have to. Do, she doesn't have to. You know, be the Onibaba the next day. She. She, you know, lays in bed, doesn't move. You know, the girl's too scared to leave. And then the girl gets a nightmare. Of the Onibaba, and she you know sits up screaming, and Hachi's you know just outside the house and hears her screaming and he like runs away. I'm not sure why he ran away, but he does. <laughs> it might have been because he got a bit scared too, or he thought that because he he didn't even like show up, say hey, it's me. He was just literally standing outside the hut, yeah. creeping on them. So, granted, I think there was also a scene where he was drinking sake too. So he might have also been drunk, trying to figure out, you know, she hasn't been buying a couple of days. What's going on here? Yeah, went to go see and. Obviously, being mad or trying to figure, it's like, what is going on? And that initially happened. Oh, she woke up screaming, gotta go. A little bit later, it was like, okay. And th- this is one of the cooler scenes was um, the, the mother-in-law is just like, hey, I gotta go take out these swords. I'm gonna go sell them. I'll, uh, I'll be back later. And that's when it starts to rain. And oh yeah, because she was saying, "What was it? Ushi didn't have the she didn't food the for them last that time." Yeah, the God, I, I know I'm going to mispronounce it. The millet. Yeah, the millet. Sorry, it's what the I had to remind because it every time they kept saying it, or at least the subtitles no, he, kept he's trying to sell it, He's trying to sell her a mullet. 
Let's go. Well, every every time the <laughs> what was it? Every time the subtitles would pop up and everything, I just kept things like mallet for some reason. But no, it's millet, the type of food. And yeah, it's raining outside. And he's like, "Well, yesterday he said he didn't have any, and I need to pick it up today." So, you know, I'll be right back. Yeah. Going to be late, but I'll be right back do, 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 in do, the rain. Do, do. <laughs> and so, um, she she runs out, and they they have this really cool like rain effect. I, I'm sure they had like some sort of like hose that they're spraying at the correct angle, but it was really cool rain. Oh, it's usually a lot of that stuff is done by rain, like giant rain machines. Yeah. Um, Unless they just waited for the perfect day. I mean, that <laughs> would be even cooler if it was, like, legitimate rain and they did the scene during that. Like, it, hey, the monsoon's coming through. Time to film. It might be a possibility given it was all essentially shot at location. Yeah. Because even, like, as you looked up to the they huts in the middle that... of the swamp, and they actually lived in the huts that, that were oh, yeah. in, the sea, in the film. <laughs> so it could be a possibility that it was, at one day it was rainy days, like, I got an idea for a scene. Yeah. I, I still think the funniest thing, oh, before we go on this final scene, <laughs> or second to final scene, one of the funniest things about the production was, he made a slide to entertain everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well and, and like i find it kind of funny too it's like in the sense like you like with this uh premise i made a joke early on but you could kind of see it this way too it's just like um the way the mother's portraying everything is is like almost like um you know like her gaslighting her daughter in law so much so that like you know she abstains from having sex with uh, Hashi before, you know, before they get married and all that, and trying to keep her around, but at the same time, like the daughter's struggling with her own her own urges, um, and it's just like, you know, the battle of abstinence versus the power of boner at the same time. Yep, versus like for, you know a demon. <laughs> yeah, and it was so weird. Like, in in all reality, if she if like the daughter thought it was fake, that's one thing. But like, and like, if, if she, if I, like, I saw her conv- try to like convince herself that she was crazy, maybe I would have also believed it. But it was so weird how willing she was to run through that those reads a second time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So she runs through the reads. It's raining. It's it's incredibly, you know, dark. The, the reeds are m- viciously moving right now. And, yeah, of course, here comes the Onibaba yet again to scare her. And she def- defers her away. And as she's running away from the Onibaba, she's also screaming for Hachi. And they find each other in the reeds and immediately just right there in the rain. <laughs> just go at it. Because he's just like, no, 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 demons don't exist. You know, Buddha, Buddha isn't real. You know, hell isn't real. You'll be fine. Well, yeah, because he's essentially, and as far as I interpret it, he's going at the angle, I killed a priest and nothing bad has happened to me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that's how it's supposed to be interpreted, but... Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, I mean, like, in, in, 
at the same time, though, it's like, demons may not be real, but snakes and, you know, snakes are real, and then, you know, like, they've even been mentioned in the movie before by, like, the samurai, like, I'm sure this this area is very dangerous. With, like, Infested sorts, like, with demons and snakes, yeah. Yeah, like all sorts of critters. Like, how do they know like some random ass like raccoon is going to come and bite one of them in the ass? You don't. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he was just that wet, ready to go at it. Yeah, that would be a tanuki, not a raccoon. I mean, either way, it's it's very different. <laughs> a raccoon, it does not live in Japan, and Tanuki has the balls to probably do that. Okay, yeah, Tanuki. <laughs> uh-huh. I understood that joke. <laughs> All right, so, um, yeah, they go right there and then, and then, um, so the daughter-in-law begins to, to come home after they've had their, their great night. Oh, wait, before they split, he's just like, why don't you just move in with me, huh? You just move in with me. You don't have to live with your 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 mother-in-law. If you're so scared about the demon, you just live with me. I don't know why he just became, like, uh, some Italian from, like, Brooklyn, but, you know, it Forget doesn't matter. It. He's like, yeah, I mean, that was, that was essentially the attitude given there. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, hey, just forget about her. <laughs> and so, um... You know, she she's basically going home to, like, gather her things and all that. And as she sort of enters in the home, she sees her mother-in-law in the corner. And as her mother-in-law turns around, it she has the, the mask on her face. And she starts admitting, you know, like, she was wrong. She lied. It was her all, all along. She was the Onibaba. She was the demon. It was all her. She just need. She just can't take the mask off. And the entire time, she's very expressive with her hands and face. You know, looking down, looking up, looking to the side, moving her hands around her face, like showing that she can't take it off, and showing that she's tried all the different angles and everything. And I, I have to put in real quick. It was like this scene that I mentioned. Like she is such a wonderful actress. Yeah. Um, because like she was so expressive too. Yeah, like, like not seeing her face. Her. Yeah, not seeing her face at all, showing all the different expressions that that mask can do by just using her hands so close to her face, and how like you know, between squeezing your hands together almost like balling them up or having them completely wide open to show like the whites of her hands she absolutely nailed that well it's this section of the movie that shows off the theater work that the mask originates from yeah granted nowadays when it's used in theater it's more of a trope comedy style of we're not taking this too seriously anything but back in the day this that mask held well or not really held but was more feared in the theater scene as being you know this type of terror or oh you know that evil that's coming in and it the theater work behind it really shows in the entire scene because now you're not having especially how they use the shadows this is the part where i wanted to talk about the shadows Man, did they did a good job there. 
Oh, yeah, because now you're having to not only work with an actor having this on, having to be more expressive, not with their face, but with their hands, the body motions, the movements, how you position them in the scene to where you get that specific, you know, framing of the mask, how you want it to look, either looking down, up, side, crooked, and all that stuff fantastically done yeah and as she's begging and pleading for her daughter-in-law to help her remove this mask she finally relents and says fine but you will allow me to, to do what i want you will listen to what i say and i am going to see hachi all day and all night however much i want to see him and the mother-in-law says yes yes you can do whatever just please get this off me anything and as she reaches for the mask to remove it she grasps it and tries to pull and tug and push and everything and you see like the the older woman just scream in pain and writhe um and almost like go, go into a corner and it becomes a struggle between um the two of them inside this hut trying to remove this mask as though like every time she tries to approach to remove it the older woman always like recoils in fear and pain and finally she grabs a mallet i think it was yeah yeah i think it was like a, a little hand mallet yeah was it like a mallet or some sort of rock i don't know if it was a mallet or if it was a uh the the water pail um, thing. Okay. That that was the one thing I wasn't really too clear on what was going on because the focus, they never put the focus on what was in the hand or anything. It was, you just knew it was like a blunt object used to just yeah try to break this mask. And she, she basically just dives at her uh, mother-in-law and basically tries to s- just smack this mask off and like crack it. And eventually, after this massive struggle for a few like minutes, it finally cracks in the center, and she rips off like half of it, finally revealing this hideous face, um, almost looking like she dipped her face in like acid. <laughs> and uh, oh, oh yeah, the makeup work on it really great because it just showed it as being scarred infected and all that stuff yeah and uh um, as she sort of sees this face she she begins to run out and um i i didn't want to mention that the the scene as haji returns to his hut he sees someone inside and immediately stabs him well, Hachi, Hachi gets, gets stabbed. Yeah, that's like, what I'm yeah, saying. Hachi gets stabbed by the, the some random person that's in his hut. There was another yeah, was like soldier. Another, yeah, yeah, like a deserter? Probably, yeah, probably a deserter. Now, I did want to sort of talk about this scene. Is Do you think that was um, the the son? It is. Hmm. Yeah. It might be a possibility. That would have been... Because really, uh, remember, when he looked at him, he, he looked surprised. 
Yeah. Like, why are you here? So it could have been, you know, a random person, obviously, and he'd be like, why are you here? Or it could have been, you should be dead kind of look. <laughs> yeah, it, I feel it, like it, it wasn't the son, because the son, I feel like, would have gone back to his own hut, unless Hachi tried to kill him. That's what I'm saying. There's that whole possibility of Hachi trying to kill him. So that would have been relevant for that uh, mystery. But they left in the they left it shrouded in mystery after Hachi gets stabbed, and I really like that idea that they left it ended for the for the viewer. I will just leave it up to one of three possibilities because mm. it could either be Hachi, it could have been someone else from, oh not Hachi, uh, Kichi. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so it could it could have been Kitchy coming back as a means of waiting for him just to easily kill him for her attempted trying to kill him. It could be a random person from their platoon that also survived because he didn't make a mention of that. Of it was just me and Kitchy that was the only one that were able to survive. Everyone else died. Yeah, but it could have been someone who survived and just you know one of the kills like you abandoned us, got to kill you. Or it's just a random soldier, and it was a case of essential karma coming to get kill Hachi because he tried. He was a deserter and tried running from the fight. Yeah. And then, um, so you see in the final scene after the mask is taken off, revealing this horrible demon creature is basically what the the daughter-in-law describes and yeah she's pretty hideous at this point and says demon demon and begins running out and running away through the fields as they're briskly being blown about and then at the very end you see the daughter jump over the hole and then the old lady jump over the hole you don't know if she falls in or not but they they leave it open ended like that at the end of the movie, which I feel like for that is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Because it could because the ending of it all is just the daughter in law is it now has become the one that's left with nothing mm-hmm. because her new on and off boyfriend is now dead. Her mother in law basically has become a demon now chasing her down trying to say no don't you know don't leave don't run for me and all that stuff and she has nothing else to go back to even if the mother did fall down the hole and die what is she going to do now yeah and i guess leaving it open ended like that is a bit more on the interesting side. I, I felt I definitely felt it was satisfying because it left left it open for the imagination, and I, I think it's a shame that more films don't do that these days. Um, because I, I cannot. Well, these days they they try to aim for like sequels or whatever, but I like the open endedness with the intention of not doing a sequel. Sometimes you run into films that want to set up a sequel or they have more of the story to tell other times it's just going with a satisfying conclusion that ties all these narrative threads together 
there's nothing wrong with doing an ambiguous ending. The problem comes down with how to do an ambiguous ending. True. Because a lot of the times people will just do it. It will be completely unsatisfying. And the excuse is like, oh, it's just art. You don't understand it. You have certain you have certain moments where the ambiguous ending works and you have the fans and the people who love the movie able to come up with, you know, what if scenarios that happen. One of the most famous ones basically to happen was it, uh, it Texas Chainsaw? I mean, not that I'm thinking more... I want to say it's Godfather, but I'm thinking that it's wrong. No, it's, it's the Sopranos, where it just immediately just cuts to black. So, Sopranos. Okay, that's what it was. I knew it, it had to have been one <sighs> of those. You had to bring big, up the Sopranos ending. Well, it it had a. I knew it was one of those big franchises, <laughs> but that's basically the same notion yeah. to where yeah. you. It's not really tying up all the exclusions or everything, but it's satisfying enough to where people still talk about it, like. What so, some happened? people it was satisfying. I was not yeah. happy with that ending. But it, you still talk about it. It's oh, yeah, still something yeah. that is influential, be it good or bad. It's not bad in the sense of you just you know did it because we didn't know what else to do. It they did it as a means of let's just end it right there, and people can be mad about it. But those same people that are mad about it are also the ones saying, "Well, here's what could have happened." Yeah, that's true. Because it was such a moment that people still remember. I'm I'm not even going to be like 100% confident in saying something like this, but I'm pretty sure the ending to this film as well, since even like behind the scenes and whatnot, Roger was the one who brought up where this movie essentially introduced horror into Japan and like Asian side of cinematography. I'm pretty sure that had the same impact as well, conversational-wise, with people, since it was just, she jumps over this pit, and then it just cuts. You don't see the conclusion, there's no, did she make it over and kept running, did she fall in and now left her daughter-in-law with nothing at all? We don't know. We can speculate about it all that we want, but the way that it's done, I'm pretty sure led to the same conversations where... That nowadays people had about the Sopranos. Yeah. All right. Well, I would like to uh, see what our review on it on a scale of one to ten. Uh, we'll start out with the uh, Fanger this time. What did you think? I, I I do think that this was a really good movie. I'd say it's a great like it's an easy nine out of ten. Um, considering like well, I'm also putting into consideration like what they had to work with back then. Yeah. Um, and remember, 1964 not, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a much older film. Um, and by modern horror, this wouldn't have been all that scary. But for like back then, like for it being the thing that introduced us to so much different horror, I think it was a great uh, foundation to lay on. Yeah. So um, I know I'm biased because this is my favorite movie. I, I really want to give it like a 9.9 .9 out of 10. Um, it had some flaws, but they weren't 
critical enough to do anything poor to the movie. And realistically, Onibaba was probably the reason why um, it influenced a lot of directors uh, in Japan to release films such as like the Ringu, um, Iron Man, which I can talk about at a later time. Um, we could actually watch that one. Um, and, and a lot of other like J horror movies that actually released later on. Um, this was probably the door cracking open, allowing all those directors to get their foot in, 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 in the door and start introducing all these different films, um, in, in that region. And I absolutely believe that, uh, it's influenced some indie directors in modern day from what I've seen in a few few other films. Um, but I, I definitely think that it's it's had some resemblance. Kind of like uh, uh, like The Birds, for instance, for America, was definitely an influential film to American horror. For me, I would have to go with... Because granted... We have to look at it, this movie being a benchmark, the starting point for quote-unquote modern horror. We've always, narratively, we've always had horror going around because we've had narrative tales ever since the dawn of humanity. I'm going to go with this as a benchmark and starting for modern horror. It's going to be an 8 out of 10. There was, it's not like any major glaring issues that I had trouble with. You can't really complain too much about the lighting because a lot of it wasn't black and white. So they did a wonderful job working around all those limitations and everything. A bit kind of disappointing, but also hilarious how two main characters never really had a name. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it I guess was you just, could, you could knock it on that. <laughs> it was just billed as Kitchy's mother and Kitchy's wife. There might have been a few portions where Hachi said, you know, the wife's name. No, they they, they were never named in the film. I 100% know that. Even in the scene where she's yeah. running through the... Hmm, interesting. It's still kind of funny how your main characters just don't have a name, but they still have the personality to carry it over. You initially, right off the bat, the mother in any type of conversation is the one you can tell takes control irregardless. And the daughter-in-law is just either nodding away or whatnot in the background. There might be like some controlling narrative going on too, which makes her become more rebellious and defiant later on because like there is finally someone else here. I don't have to listen to you anymore. And he's just like right down the road. So you, the care, like the actors themselves, do a fantastic job overall expressing who these characters are, the motivations behind what they do as well, and they're able to do that in the first, essentially, like the first minutes whenever they talk, hmm. because the actions that they do beforehand can tell a different story, and then you get the dialogue, and it's like, all right, here's what the motivations. Is all going along. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think we about wrapped it up here. I really appreciate you uh, guys listening in um, to the Crankshaft podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, Ents Gaming for all their support to us. You can always visit our Discord, uh, which would be Ents Gaming. Um, you could visit the website uh, by just Googling it. You'll find our, our website there. Um, you could support our Patreon through the website. And supporting Ants supports us to watch for their films. Um, we, we, we just love watching films anyways. And uh, we just like talking about them anyway. So we, we'd still be doing these podcasts even if uh, we didn't get, get anyone's support anyways. But we just would appreciate it if you could. But if not, you know, just sh- share the podcast around. Let other people know about it. Um, you know, you can stop on by by the discord and just let us know what you think about the podcast or future films you want to watch we'll be glad yep. to review them you can even make suggestions it could honestly be films one of the yeah. first episodes we did like the medium itself mangas if we feel like torturing finger a bit more we can go into books so he has to learn how to read finally but just <laughs> horror in general like any sort of medium out there hey have you guys looked into this have you heard into this if it's something obscure perfect we can go into that it'll be more fun in a way if Absolutely. it's something a bit more modern that's honestly fine pop culture understands it i have at least a drawer if not two of just B and C rated movies that is on a list that we're going to go through. Absolutely. So any and full suggestions that you have, we would gladly love to go into as well. Except for books, unless Roger reads them to me. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do an audio book for you. 50 shades of gray. <laughs> that's that's that, true horror. That is true horror right there. <laughs> My yes, ears are bleeding. You got to tuck a homie in with some 50 shades of gray. <laughs> That's how you get kicked out of a bookstore. I'll bring the cheap wine and Taco Bell. Heck yeah. Alright, we'll see you guys in a few weeks. And uh, we'll, we'll, let the, we'll let Finger give a little sneak peek of what it might be. Oh, okay. Well, uh, the, the uh, film that I was thinking about doing for next one would be uh, actually one that's on YouTube. A little like series on YouTube called Hi I'm Mary Mary. And this one kind of a little bit of a story about a woman with um almost trapped in her own head kind of thing. But like so, like in it you know, you, you can kinda of see multiple different stages of different mental issues kind of popping up in the series. Um but I won't give too much away because it, it, it definitely revolves around like you know the, the creatures that you find in the series um, and it's it's a fairly quick one um, I say that as it keeps getting more and more videos added to it <laughs> but um, it, it's definitely like one that I, I, I find really interesting because I, I, I like the more psychological or aspects of it and like the you know, just delving into the mind of someone who's 
going through just so much mentally like what it's like from their perspective almost like battling their own demons kind of thing all right thank you again for joining us and talk to you later